Before we begin, we wish to acknowledge the land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Canada is home to many different Indigenous peoples. We ask listeners to visit Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada.ca and Native-Land.ca to learn more about and reflect upon the Indigenous peoples whose traditional territory they currently occupy and their own role in reconciliation. We are a podcast that focuses on the stories and science of medicine. We recognize that there is a long history of medicine in particular being used as a tool of violence and oppression against Indigenous peoples. As our small contribution to the ongoing project of reconciliation, we hope to make space through our podcast for conversations about how different Indigenous peoples may view healthcare and the barriers they may experience in accessing it to this day. In Ontario alone, over 1,600 people are added to organ transplant waiting lists every year. Organ donation is very impactful. One organ donor can benefit up to 75 people and save up to eight lives. Indeed, 19,518 Ontarians have received a life-saving organ transplant since 2003. Unfortunately, while in many surveys people express their support for organ donation, only 35% of Ontarians are registered donors. Many agencies and organizations across the country, including Trillium Gift of Life here in Ontario, are working diligently to implement new policies and programs to increase participation in this life-saving practice. Organ donation and transplantation has been an important policy concern, both on the federal and provincial levels, for many years. One Canadian province, Nova Scotia, has decided to take a bold new approach. Starting in 2021, it is set to become the first jurisdiction in North America to implement an opt-out system where all adults will be presumed donors unless they previously registered their refusal. While this is new to North America, some European countries, including Spain and Belgium, are already practicing presumed consent. In this episode, we'll be discussing the personal stories, unique ethical considerations, and complex biomedical science of organ donation and transplantation. I'm Noor. I'm Frank. And I'm Ativa. Welcome to episode 83 of Raw Talk. Lynch. I was born with cystic fibrosis and I had three double lung transplants, one in 2014, one in 2017, and one in 2019. So for me, it was really random, actually. I had no pre-existing condition. I was always healthy. I was always an active person. And then I just randomly, late November, I got a cough and I didn't think anything of it because it was flu season and everyone was getting sick. And then a few days later, I developed some chest pain. I went to the hospital and they said that it was probably pneumonia and that I was probably fine. So they gave me some medication. After that, I just got worse. Like maybe within 24 hours, I was back at the hospital. I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't drink anything. I was throwing up all day. I couldn't even lie flat because my chest was hurting so much. So I went to Toronto General Hospital downtown. I was diagnosed with heart failure right then and there. Uh, and they said it was caused by a virus. You just heard from Miles Lynch and Maria Rahman, 
who are alive today because of the organ donations they've received. We were incredibly fortunate to be able to speak with them and hear about their unique transplant stories. We'll hear more about them later on in the episode, but first, Dr. Istvan Mucci explains the difference between deceased and living donor transplants. Dr. Mucci is a transplant nephrologist and clinical researcher in the multi-organ transplant program at the Toronto General Hospital. Kidney failure is somewhat different from the other organ failures in that uh, there is dialysis. So if uh, you don't receive an organ transplant, kind of a life-saving organ transplant, you can still maintain life and maintain an active life, actually, while doing dialysis. But one needs to understand that uh, dialysis treatment only offers about 10% or so of, of kidney function. So obviously, it is not a perfect treatment. And this compares to anywhere between 35, 40 to 100% of normal kidney function that is being provided by a successful kidney transplant. The different types of kidney transplant or transplant can be broadly categorized as disease donor and living donor transplant. And there are additional categories within the disease donor transplant categories as well. If we talk about the disease donor transplant first, in Ontario, this is uh, organized provincially. The Trillium Gift of Life Network coordinates disease donor transplantation. So if you have end-stage kidney failure and you need a transplant, eventually you need to get on a waiting list for a disease donor transplant because there is not enough donors to provide a kidney transplant immediately for people who require a transplant uh, at any time. So you will have to go on a waiting list and this waiting list and the whole transplant and donation process is coordinated by the Gift of Life Network. To get further insight about the process of gaining access to a transplant in Canada, as well as the complex bioethical and policy dimensions of organ donation, we spoke to Jed Gross, bioethicist with the University Health Network and a member of the Joint Centre for Bioethics at the University of Toronto. I'm most familiar with the process in Ontario, so I'll use that as an illustration. In general, patients who are experiencing organ failure will be referred by a physician in the community to a transplant center for assessment. If the patient is potentially someone who will benefit from a transplant, a multidisciplinary team will do a thorough medical workup through a series of appointments and then come together to make a listing decision based on whether the transplant candidate meets provincial criteria. To the extent that we're able to work with the patient to line up pieces that seem iffy, like if the patient would benefit from better access to mental health resources, it's important that we consider the individual's likelihood of benefiting from transplant with these supports in place. If a patient is found ineligible for listing, they can go to another transplant center for a second opinion. As long as the transplant candidate remains on the list, deceased donor organs are allocated as they become available according to algorithms that are established by government oversight organizations like Trillium Gift of Life Network in Ontario. A major factor in organ allocation is finding donor organs that are compatible with the patient. Dr. Mucci discusses the immunological factors that determine how someone is matched with another person for an organ donation. I guess in Ontario at this point, there are two main factors. There are a number of others, potential factors, but two main factors that, that count in matching. One is blood type, and you have to be blood group compatible. It doesn't mean that you have to be the same blood group, 
You have to be blood group compatible. And other level of matching is on the level of so-called antibodies or HLE, human leukocyte antigen antibody level. Practically speaking, that uh, during our life for various reasons, we might, our immune system might build some antibodies that may respond or may attack the antigens of another person if we encounter their, their antigens. And of course, with a transplant, when you're receiving an organ from someone else, you're getting proteins and antigens from that other person. If you have preformed antibodies in your blood, your immune system will attack that organ immediately and will lead to rejection. And that's the other level of, of matching. We also asked Dr. Muche about how long patients wait to receive a transplant. On average, uh, waiting time can vary between a few months to six to eight to 10 years after starting dialysis. Ideally, when you are developing chronic kidney disease and, and kidney failure, you should start thinking about the different renal replacement therapies, whether you want to export transplant or whether you want to just stick to dialysis. Weigh the pros and cons for those. For many patients, the best way to, to get a transplant is before they start dialysis, actually. It's called preemptive transplant, and this is when you get the kidney transplant even before your kidney function is below the level that necessitates a renal replacement therapy. In general, we measure kidney function from blood work, associate a number or characterize the kidney function with a number. It's called glomerular filtration rate or GFR. For kind of sake of ease, we, we talk about percentages. You may not feel any symptoms until your kidney function is as low as 30% or so. But if you have chronic kidney disease from various reasons, it may take you 5, 10, 20 years to get down to this range of 30 to 40% when you start feeling symptoms of kidney disease. You will need renal replacement therapy because of the symptoms and because of the, the severity of the condition once your kidney function is below about 10% or so. And you can go on the waiting list once your kidney function is about 15% of normal. The clock doesn't start ticking for you until you start dialysis. The only way to get this preemptive transplant is to get a living donor transplant. If you want a living donor transplant, unfortunately, the onus is on you to find donor or your family or friends. And that's another kind of more reaction of discussion, what is needed and, and who can help you to find a donor. We heard a little from Maria at the start of the episode and she told us about her heart transplant. Let's dive a little deeper into her story. I had my heart transplant two years ago almost, um, December 24th, 2018. At that point in time, it wasn't that big of a surprise. When I was first admitted into the hospital with heart failure, it was a huge surprise to me because I thought it was probably just a flu or as the other hospital said, pneumonia. Five days after that, a heart became available for me and then it took two extra days to get to me. And a week later, I had my transplant. Next, Maria told us about her heart transplant surgery and journey to recovery. Surgery was fairly quick. I think it was six hours and it was on Christmas Eve. I have a really big family. I have three brothers and I have a lot of like cousins and aunts and uncles. So everyone, it was like a party in the waiting room. So on December 24th, on Christmas Eve, everyone was waiting in the waiting room, waiting to hear good news. And then I actually slept through all of Christmas. And I woke up on December 26th and I was like, is it Christmas yet? And my brothers come in the waiting room with all these bags because they were boxing me shopping. 
So that experience, it was stressful, but it brought everyone closer together. I was in the hospital for a week after. And then I think recovery was probably the hardest part for me. So actually going through surgery and being in the hospital, I don't think that was as hard as everything that came after. I've always been someone who's always busy. And for me to just take a step back and not do anything, that really got to me because I had never done that before. I'd always taken a semester throughout the summer or I was working or I was doing something. Not being able to do anything was really hard for me. But then also, because everything happened so fast, once you actually think about what you went through and how it affected not only your life, but so many other people's lives that loved ones, that's when you realize, wow, I really went through that. Miles has cystic fibrosis, or CF. CF is a genetic condition affecting the cells which produce mucus and sweat, and can cause damage to many different organ systems in the body, including the respiratory system. Symptoms can include severe shortness of breath, persistent coughing, and chronic lung infections. As the disease progresses and the lungs become more damaged, patients with CF often require a lung transplant. Many patients with CF may in fact require a double lung transplant. We asked Miles about his experiences with this procedure. The goal is to get the most amount of life you can out of lungs and then hope that you are eligible for a transplant. So yeah, luckily enough, I was. And I had a few transplant assessments over my lifetime. First when I was 12, again when I was 15, again when I was 16, and the one when I was assessed at 16 years old, I later got listed and then received the call when I was 17. And then as for the other two, you, I guess you hope not to run into transplant rejection, but it is something that does occur among different patients. I ended up with uh, chronic rejection of lungs and then once more after that transplant. Lungs are a little harder to come by. And the wait list, say in 2014, was six months to a year. But, you know, we've had cases that are two years plus. Long story short, it was four months waiting on the list, which was less than the, you know, initial six months to a year expectation. That was nice. And getting the call is, is truly like, a, there's no feeling like it. It's like, wow, I'm going to get a lung transplant. I'm going to know what it's like to be like a normal person. That's the good stuff, getting the call. The ethics of deciding who gets a new organ can be challenging. We asked Jed Gross about the ethics of organ allocation with an emphasis on how risk versus benefit is assessed in this context. Unfortunately, given the scarcity of organs and the variety of patients' disease courses, no system is going to be perfect. Transplant ethicists often frame this as a balance between equality of access and utility. There's a threshold for listing patients of about a 50% anticipated five-year survival post-transplant in Ontario. Among that population, the available organs are allocated algorithmically, so at this point it shifts from a committee making a listing determination to something that is more like numbers being called in a lottery in some sense, although those, those numbers reflect biomedical criteria. Patients who have the most dire need while falling within the group that are likely to benefit tend to be prioritized, but a lot of the contours are organ and diagnosis specific. There are differences 
like how important immunological matching is to avoid rejection of the transplanted organ. With kidneys, Canadian Blood Services has a national program for getting organs to patients who are especially hard to match. In addition to these accommodations of relevant differences, if we shift focus and look at living donation, we accept that many individuals are donating to help a specific loved one, and we accept that as a kind of appropriate partiality. To the extent that we deviate from egalitarian norms like trying to approximately equalize wait times for kidneys or the risk of death on the wait list for vital organs, it's really a matching exercise occurring at a policy level. Certainly, the size of the benefit relative to the alternative of not getting a transplant factors very largely in this. Many papers have appeared in recent years maintaining that women, the elderly, people with disabilities, racialized people, and other marginalized groups do not receive transplants to the extent that they could and should be. We asked Jed Gross about how existing organ donation policies contribute to inequities in the delivery of medical care in Canada. In a diverse and economically unequal society, almost any policy utilizing medical indicators of need or likelihood to benefit is likely to affect different populations differently. For example, when the United States retooled its liver allocation system to emphasize disease acuity as measured by something called MILD score, Research showed that significant racial disparities adversely impacting black Americans were largely alleviated, but gender disparities adversely affecting women actually became worse. This is probably related to differences in muscle mass and serum creatinine levels. There is generally no requirement that we use a specific criterion like that, and if it significantly disadvantages a particular group of patients, that may be a reason to revise or abandon the criteria. Importantly, a difference in access that correlates with a highly studied social category may actually draw attention to a problem that causally maps onto something else. For example, if higher waitlist mortality among women is a result of unnecessary size matching that disadvantages physically smaller candidates, the gender lens is an illuminating starting point, but addressing the problem in an appropriately targeted way may entail revisiting the size criteria regardless of a patient's gender or ethnicity or diagnosis or other considerations. I think the key is to look at each stage of the process carefully to identify patterns of inequality that may be inconsistent with the values underpinning allocation from referral to listing criteria to transplant and mortality data. If there's a disparity, is there an addressable cause? It could be that one population is unfairly disadvantaged at the referral stage, but among this population, those who are listed or getting a priority that then seems unwarranted based on waitlist mortality data. I actually recently joined a group of researchers based in Toronto led by Hala Muadi that proposes to do this kind of staged breakout of data using available data from the Institute for Clinical and Evaluative Sciences, or ICES. Finally, I should note that like the COVID-19 epidemic, transplant medicine provides a kind of window on societal inequities. If we start peeling back the layers of the onion and find that some patients have poorer access to living donation, 
because their friends and family are economically marginalized or in precarious health themselves. This may be a social justice concern that impacts transplant outcomes, but lies in a realm of policymaking other than transplant policy and ethics. Earlier, you heard about the differences between deceased and living donation. Given the differences, we asked Dr. Mucci about the unique challenges people might face when seeking a living donation. The biggest barrier is this ask, that I have to go out and ask someone to do something for me. And I think this may be easier for some people than for others. And it varies on multiple levels, uh, both on individual and on group level and, and other kind of cultural barriers may, may play into this. So while in many of the efforts that are focusing on improving access to living or transplant, we try to focus on helping patients who have kidney failure to communicate with others to, to help them. I think it is very important that we also need to talk to the general community because it makes things tremendously easier for everybody if potential donors will come forward on their own accord as opposed to being asked. And, and it is possible, and then there are ways to facilitate that. But some involvement on the side of the patient actually is still needed. Personal identity and history, including religion, culture, and immigration status, influence how people experience and understand their health. And this is especially relevant in the search for a living donor. People prefer and are often more likely to receive living donations from those within their own communities. For this reason, amongst others, it is imperative that we prioritize the collection of data on a myriad of groups, as well as develop culturally informed outreach. Recent studies have reported that Indigenous people, as well as African, Caribbean, and Black people in Canada are 50-70% to less likely to receive a transplant. To contribute to addressing the systemic barriers to organ transplantation faced by these groups and other marginalized communities, Dr. Mucci's research group is working with community partners to conduct focus groups with patients and their families. Eventually, Dr. Mucci hopes to implement the lessons from this work and pilot interventions to reduce the inequities in access to living donations. You can check out nephros.net to learn more about this project. Organ donation is a deeply personal choice. We've already spoken about how different racialized communities may have different perspectives on organ donation, as well as different barriers in accessing transplants. An additional relevant consideration is religious belief. Dr. Mucci gave us a few examples religious concerns or concerns around the burial procedures, which is a more important consideration in terms of timing for some for a Muslim and for the Jewish community as well, that a short time is preferred after death for the burial, and, and people think that donation will unnecessarily delay the burial, which is not quite the case. Sometimes it's just not knowing what your religion will say about organ donation and what's the position. And so it's important to know that most of the major religious groups and any of the faith support organ donation in one form or the other. There are multiple approaches though. So you may want to talk to your own community and or own religious leader. Next, we spoke with Dr. Shaf Kashavji, Surgeon-in-Chief of the University Health Network and a leading researcher in the field of lung transplantation. We wanted to get his insights to better understand how the science of organ transplantation has evolved over the last few decades. 
You know, I mean, it, it's a great Toronto story, uh, University of Toronto and Toronto General. Uh, you know, I was a, a third year medical student when I heard on the radio that surgeons at Toronto General had done the first successful lung transplant in the world. And, you know, I mean, it had been tried 43 times before and failed. So, you know, when they took that patient into the operating room in 1983, no one had ever survived that operation. So it was remarkable as an achievement. And, you know, as a medical student, it was sort of noteworthy for me because I'd never heard of a lung transplant. I'd heard of kidney and liver, right, and heart. So it was kind of, you know, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool that they can transplant lungs. And I kind of, that was it. And then, you know, I finished medical school and I started my surgical residency and I was assigned to the thoracic surgery service. And lo and behold, they were doing the first double lung transplant in the world when I was on call that night. So I got to scrub in and assist and, and witness that happening. And, and it was just an amazing miracle, but also quite an impression on me in, in how risky it was, how, how unpredictable preservation was at the time, and what an incredible feat it was to even pull it off one at a time. And at that time, we quoted a 50% mortality of the operation to the patients, which was just amazing. And today, a patient going into our operating room tonight faces a 1.5% mortality, you know, like a 98.5% chance of surviving the operation that was 50-50 when I was a medical student or, or less. So, you know, we've come a long way. The first was in de developing stable preservation techniques, uh, the low potassium dextran solution that was my master's thesis work has really become the standard of, of lung preservation worldwide now. It's uh, marketed and available for all programs around the world. And then we took the next step of saying, okay, we don't just want to preserve the lung the way we found it, but can we make it better than we found it? Can we make a lung that's ready for that transplant challenge? We also asked Dr. Keshavji about what makes some organs more challenging to transplant versus others. Some of it is the vulnerability of the organ in the way they're built. You know, a kidney is relatively robust, as is a liver. The heart is a little more finicky and limited in how long it'll go without blood flow. And the lung is, is interesting because lung tissue starts to die in about 20 seconds. But one of the things we realized, which was key to our preservation technique and the technologic advance, is that you can fill the lung with oxygen. And even though it doesn't have blood flow, it can get oxygen to all its cells by diffusion, direct diffusion. So even though it's ischemic, meaning no blood flow, it's not anoxic. And we took advantage of that. So we fill the lungs with oxygen when we store them. So they have a supply and use it that way. But these are the kinds of things that you have to figure out, like what is specific for each organ? How can you help that organ in that stressed state? You know, the easiest transplant really is a kidney transplant, right? Because also if the kidney doesn't work, you got dialysis as a backup. A heart transplant actually is very simple to do. It's very straightforward, right? Switching out a pump. A kidney and heart were the first two transplants to be achieved. And then liver, you know, came afterwards. And lung transplant, like the first kidney transplant was done in the 50s. And the first successful lung transplant didn't happen until 1983. Not for lack of trying. It is actually the hardest of the transplants to do. 
because of that issue of the blood supply. The lung is a very, very fragile organ. I mean, it feels like a very soft sponge. And, and you know, the lung, if you look at it microscopically, the walls are just two cells thick, okay, with a blood vessel and, and a lung cell on each side. And so, you know, th th that is, is very fragile and, and vulnerable to damage and requires preservation. Now, the trick we did of saying, well, let's just keep the oxygen in it so that the cells don't get starved of oxygen was really a home run that, that allowed us to leapfrog the other organs that were 25 years ahead of us. Uh, and now lung, in terms of the unique advanced things that you can do with an organ, we've been able to do more of that and now, you know, the, the liver and the heart and the kidney people are, you know, sort of understanding that you can really, you know, change this and, and modify organs and improve them uh, with, with some of these techniques. So ex vivo liver is certainly, you know, was the next one to be developed in England. And then people heart now is coming along. A lot of Dr. Kashavji's work has focused on ways to alter donor lungs to improve lung function and prevent organ rejection, effectively increasing the viable organ supply. His lab is currently exploring the use of gene therapy to alter donor lungs and make them better suited for transplant. When you die, you're not going to use those organs, but you could save eight, nine lives by, you know, agreeing to be an organ donor. But when you take it one step further, those organs have a history and some damage to them may not be perfect. And then the recipient spends the rest of their lives trying to reject that organ and, and destroy it because it's not self. So once we got going with organ transplantation, I realized that if you could use the opportunity to say, well, can you modify the organ so it looks more like self before self gets to see it? then maybe you'd give that organ a better chance and, and have better outcomes in transplant. So uh, very early on, we moved the research from preservation to actually modification of organs or improving organs to have a better chance for transplants. So ultimately our goal is can you make an organ that will outlive or outlast the recipient so initially, we have started with really proving the concept that you can do it, right? So we initially started working in the donor, and we did animal studies and so on, showing that you could transduce the, the, the lung in the donor and then have the gene expressed after transplant and then have the gene actually improve the outcome after transplant. And, and what we did is we took the common cold virus, the adenovirus, took out the viral genes and put in interleukin-10 gene. And interleukin-10 is, is a cytokine that downregulates inflammation and the innate immune response of reperfusion injury related to the transplant, and also downregulates the acquired immune response or the rejection response. So it's kind of a very good place to start. You need a huge burst of IL-10 at the beginning to downregulate all that acute injury, and then a low level of, of IL-10 forever in the organ to, to prevent rejection. Uh, so when the T cells come down uh, through the organ, they would be turned off, if you will, or turned down. The really important concept of that too is right now, the way we immunosuppress transplant recipients is we give them drugs that suppress the whole immune system, right? And so they're more vulnerable to infections, they're more vulnerable to de developing cancer. 
So if we could just, even at the simplest concept, create local immunosuppression with gene therapy, then you would spare systemic immunosuppression and all the complications of that. So th that would be the, the moderate goal and the, the sort of home run goal is not needing any immunosuppression. We asked Dr. Kashabji about the bigger picture. How has his research changed the reality of patients waiting for a lung? We found, you know, lungs with big blood clots in the pulmonary emboli. Sometimes even a patient died of a pulmonary embolus. And you say, how could you use a lung like that? Well, we wouldn't. But when we put it on the ex vivo, we would put it on, on the system. We would treat it with drugs to break down clots, like we treat human patients that, that have a big blood clot to their lung dissolve the clot and assess the lung function and show that the lung is still good. If it didn't get better, don't use it. If it's better, use it. So that's a simple one. Another one is a lot of lungs have a lot of fluid in them. With severe brain injury, you get what's called neurogenic pulmonary edema, related to the brain dysfunction, fluid leaks into the lungs. And so the oxygen goes down and the lungs aren't working well. That actually is a reversible injury. If only you knew that that's all that was going on. So when you take the lungs out of the donor, put them on the ex vivo system, perfuse them with a the fluid to suck out the, the fluid out of the lung, and the lung keeps getting better and better, you're confident to use it. Many donor lungs are also infected with hepatitis C. These are young donors with good lungs, except they're infected with hepatitis C. And now there are drugs to treat hepatitis C. We're developing a system to sterilize the lungs with UVC light so that you can actually kill the viral particles and not have the hepatitis C transplanted in, into the recipient. So these are the kinds of things that you can take lungs that we never would use and make them usable. It has had a tremendous effect in the sense that worldwide of all the multi-organ donors that are available, only one in five lungs are used. Four out of five are not used and that's North American numbers, it's even smaller in some continents. So can we improve that number? And, and in, in our institution, we fully doubled the number of transplants we perform per year. We're you know, the largest lung transplant program in the world by virtue of being able to use more lungs. Dr. Kashavshi shared the highlights of his very challenging job that make the tough and sometimes very long days worth it. Well, it's a fantastic thing that your job really helps people and, and you save lives. It's tough. You don't always win. So you have to sort of be able to take that part of it, but also to see that, you know, what you do can impact not only your patient, but patients around the world by what you show people what you're doing. But the, the really exciting part about that is, you know, when you find a problem that seems insurmountable, you go to the lab and, and, and study it and figure out a new way to do things and, and bring that clinically and make a difference again, like we did with the, the low potassium dextran solution, like we did with ex vivo lung perfusion, like we did with the Nova lung and artificial lung techniques. Now the ex vivo lung work, we, we've adopted that to do in vivo lung perfusion to treat cancer in the lung without sending the chemotherapy around the body. In other words, treat just the lung with the high-dose chemotherapy so you don't cause toxicity to the kidney or the liver or the eyes. So, 
I mean, that's really exciting to continue to be able to innovate and bring bring these things that change medicine and change uh, the, the chance that people will live. I mean, I met a lady the other day who had a lung transplant 29 years ago. Like she should have been dead in six months, 29 years ago. Lived her whole life, worked, had children, grandchildren, people being married, everything, when she would not have been there at all, right? And, and even today, we have patients like that that are in danger of dying any day now, and we can snatch them off the edge and help them and get them to a, a meaningful and productive life. So that, that's a pretty exciting part. It's clear that organ transplant surgery is incredibly serious and a support system is crucial. We had the chance to speak with Gillian Lynch, Miles' sister, She has been a caregiver for her brother through all these years and a passionate advocate for organ donation. So the way that Miles told me about his first double lung transplant, that he'd gotten the call, he called me and he said like, hey, do you want to see me one last time before I get new lungs? And I immediately start shaking and I like burst into tears and I'm, I'm, you know, really dramatically like yelling out, my brother's going to get a double lung transplant, he's going to live. And everyone in that space ran up and gave me this huge hug and um, people were just throwing snacks into my hands to like take with me and I I was so new to Toronto so new to York University so new to everything so I was I still hadn't figured out how to use the bus so I'm like yelling at people and (laughs) all night Miles and I like told our favorite stories from the memories that we've made together and then waited for him to to roll into transplant. You know, in some ways for Miles, it was a really precious moment, but I was also scared because there was a chance that this could be the last moment I have with Miles. Because at Sick Kids, that's something that they prepared the family members for was that, you know, you have to realize that transplant's amazing, but it can also be your last moment with them. It's like the moments right before they roll into surgery because there's not that 100% guarantee. So, I think that that moment, just really treasuring the few moments that we had for certain before Miles was rolled into surgery was really special for me as a sister. And before each transplant that Miles was rolled into, I think you're really just appreciating who they are as a person. And I know for Miles' third transplant, I, I thought for sure that he wasn't going to come out of that one at all. I didn't know that he was going to come out. And we were really, I think, saying goodbye to each other in those few hours that we knew that we had before he was rolled into surgery. So I think transplant is such an emotional experience because it can really be life-saving and life-changing and like give you an opportunity to live a totally different life if your recovery goes well. But there is also the reality that it could be the last moment with your loved one. An organ transplant can be a lifeline, but as we've already emphasized, it can be incredibly challenging to obtain one. And even when you do, survival is never assured. Additionally, there can be numerous side effects associated with this procedure. A transplant is but the beginning of a long journey. Maria underlined this point. A lot of people only know about your journey while you're in the hospital and while you're getting your transplant. And I feel like a lot of people don't know what happens after, like daily medications you have to take for life, all the appointments you have to take, the biopsies, all the follow-ups. It's not as easy as some people think after transplant. A lot of people think transplant is a cure, but it's just a method of treatment. 
that's one thing that I really noticed that your journey doesn't stop when you leave the hospital. It's, it's ongoing and it's forever. You're always going to be a transplant patient. We asked Miles and Maria about how their transplant surgery affected their quality of life. Before my transplant, before I knew I was sick, I was always catching my breath and I was always, I always knew something was wrong or I always felt something was wrong, but I didn't know to what extent. And then it got really bad right before I was in the hospital. And then after, I just felt so much healthier. I started going to the gym regularly. I started doing, being more active and living a healthier lifestyle. Because like I said before, I was working a lot. I was just burning out. And going through everything gave me a new perspective on how I really need to take care of myself and my body. The CF lungs, they're, they're so congested with mucus at all times. That's, I'd say, the crummy part. Say, if you're in chronic rejection at like the end of the first set of lungs or the end of the second, you, you're still experiencing breathlessness and loss of energy, things like that. But at least it's still a clear set of, of lungs that have good air exchange. It's just that they're, they're functioning at a, a less quality, I guess you could say. But with CF lungs, it's like tremendously congested with the phlegm and, and mucus. So you, you always kind of sounded sick. I still, you know, I lived it up pretty good. I've lived a good life. And the quality of life I've had after transplants, I've, I've made the best of it. Regardless of immediately after recovery stage or or in the in the nice honeymoon stage or even in chronic rejection, I've still, still had a good time. All transplant surgeries come with the risk of organ rejection. This can be acute or chronic. While acute rejection occurs within days or weeks, chronic rejection can take place over months or years after transplantation. Miles experienced chronic rejection after his first and second double lung transplants, so we asked him to tell us a bit more about this experience. Jeez. You kind of get maybe a little upset the first time because you're thinking not enough being done on a, a hospital care side, you know, my, my lung function dropped. We gotta, we gotta stop this. Like, what, what can we do? And like, there's really nothing you can really, really do. So you're on anti-rejection medication and maybe I'll just say for, it, it works out very well for, for most transplant patients. I'm just kind of the anomaly, although, you know, some do get, Transplant rejection. I've seen to reject the organs quite quickly. So, in a in that sense, the the first time you go through transplant rejection, it's like confusing, upsetting. And, you know, it's happening so quickly. How come we can't treat this? So at times you're frustrated, and then you just uh, you let it go. We asked Miles about how his experience changed with each transplant surgery. Every transplant is a little more difficult in a sense. Second one was 12 hours long in surgery. And then as far as personally recovering from the second one, that one was the toughest of, out of the three. That one was a lot. It was kind of like every hurdle I ran into. CMV, the cytomegalovirus. I needed plasmapheresis because the antibodies are 
reaction of the lungs too much. So you got to remove the antigens or something like that. A lot of coccyndritis episodes, just in general, more pain, which, yeah. And it, the second one was really quite a struggle as far as the recovery standpoint went. It was a lot more than I was prepared for since I kind of figured, oh, I went through this before. It'll be a lot to go through, but I'm kind of ready for it. But it was a lot more than I was prepared for. So when it came to the third one, I was probably that much more nervous. But actually, as far as the surgery went, the I guess there was a lot of difficulty for the doctors. So it was 21 hours in surgery till they had to stop the operation. So I needed a few days to simply rest which I believe was because my hemoglobin was too low. Then back into surgery for another few hours, remove some clots, some other stuff I can't quite remember, and then finally staple me closed. So it kind of sounded like it would be a much more difficult recovery, but I'd say the third one was actually the easiest to recover from, which was kind of interesting. Miles is the first Canadian to have received three double lung transplants. Jillian spoke to us about how this has impacted her family. I try to look at things from a very positive perspective. Remember as kids, Miles was obsessed with reading the Book of World Records. So many summers were spent trying to break a world record. So I think like whenever the news came that Miles was potentially going to be listed for a third transplant, you know, I tried to like maybe guide Miles towards seeing it as being the first Canadian to have had three double lung transplants and how that would be like us breaking a world record. <laughs> it fills you with so many different emotions. I think Miles and I have both met so many people who've had transplants, also people who've you know been denied the opportunity to have a transplant. So you're like, holy smokes, we get, we get three chances and there's some people that don't get a chance. There is a shortage of organs in Canada. And as we alluded to in the introduction, many are working to try to improve efficiency in the system. One potential shift which we often hear discussed is the move away from an opt-in or encouraged volunteerism system towards an opt-out or default to donation system. North America generally has an opt-in approach where in order to be an organ donor in the event that an individual dies in a way that their organs are usable, they have to authorize it either by registering, for example, online or when they're renewing their driver's license or through proxy communication by the next of kin stating that this is what that individual would have wanted. Opt-out kind of shifts the default rule so that those individuals who have an objection to donation bear the responsibility for registering that objection in some way. It can be implemented in a variety of ways. So hard opt-out policies might require that individuals register in a database to opt-out. Other societies may have introduced opt-out and continue to, in practice, defer to the wishes of the family at the bedside. Now, although the term consent is commonly used for both living and deceased donation, I prefer to distinguish between permission for deceased donation and the kind of robust informed consent that's needed before we would subject a living donor to the risks associated with surgery. 
Anyone who's considering a major elective procedure must be informed of the nature of the surgery, potential benefits, and complications. An important safeguard here, where there are two potential patients, the donor and recipient, is having separate clinical teams focused on each of those individuals to ensure that each patient is getting the clinician's undivided loyalty. On the deceased donation side, some scholars have advocated shifting from an opt-in approach to registration to an opt-out approach. Advocates of opt-out cite different rationales. One is that this approach better reflects what people would want to do anyway, while other arguments highlight or reflect a heightened commitment to saving lives on a societal level. It does seem that there's a lot of a lot of just deferring to the wishes of, of the family at the bedside over, over everything. Would that be accurate? I think that's what happens in practice, and it's hard to justify philosophically. If you believe that we have a fairly broad right to make decisions about the disposition of our own bodies after death, for example, I might prefer to be cremated rather than buried, which may be the tradition in my family. It seems that this would include the decision to donate organs and tissue for therapy or research. The problem is actually enforcing that in a way that is seen as respectful by the living relatives who are mourning a loss. I think that one way of addressing this would be to promote better communication between individuals who are interested in organ donation and friends and family who may actually be there in the event that something tragic happens. Another option would be to actually try to in some way enforce this through legal means more rigorously, which then does risk potentially touching on sensitive issues of public trust. I think that some of the instances where opt-out has been introduced successfully, it fit well with the political culture. It may have been a country where there was a long history of performing autopsies on all patients who died in hospital, for example. The circumstances in which patients are actually passing away may be very different from one society to another, whether we're talking about a place that has a high rate of vehicular accidents or somewhere where we're primarily looking at patients who are dying in hospital. All of these considerations would seem to affect how this will actually play out. I think that in the type of complex, diverse society that we have in Ontario, this is something where we would want to proceed very slowly if we were to go ahead with really extensive public consultation and then a campaign to ensure that the public is informed before the switch would actually occur. So if not a shift to an opt-out system, what other policies could be or have been implemented to incentivize organ donation? Well, on the living donation side, rather than incentives, most of us who support living donation prefer to talk about removing disincentives. If a patient has a friend or family member or more distant social relation who is interested in donation but needs to take time off work and travel to a major city for appointments, can we make sure that donating will leave them no worse off economically? Right now, the approach to this kind of problem seems a little piecemeal in Canada based on economic need and where a person lives. Netherlands has been held out as a model of a more comprehensive approach. 
I'm not the most familiar person, but there is a an ethicist named Sigrid Frey-Revere in the States who has done a lot of work trying to figure out ways of supporting living donors. And when she looked at the Dutch model, she looked at issues like prohibitions on insurance discrimination subsequent to donating, systems that were in place to essentially guarantee that people would receive compensation for lost wages from work. I, I do try and advocate as much as possible for organ donation in general, and then even further for an opposite system so that it's more generally accepted to donate your organs after you pass away. And then giving those, those people who need a life-saving transplant for reasons that are out of their control, it gives them that chance of life. So whatever someone takes away from this, think about how, what you can do to, to help the general acceptance of organ donation. A comprehensive healthcare team is always important. We asked Maria about the support that was available for her during and after her hospital stay. I found that in the hospital, it wasn't as present, but I also felt like I didn't need it while I was in the hospital because I was dealing with the, the pain management and actually going through everything. From time to time, a social worker would come in while I was in the hospital, just to let me know that she's there for me if I needed anything. And at that point, I just, I wasn't taking it in. So at that point, I didn't really feel like I needed her. But once I got out and once I was in recovery, they were really great. And they set me up with a social worker and a psychiatrist. So I was able to talk to them and sort of explain my experience. And they have specific psychiatrists and social workers for transplants, which I really liked because not everyone's going to understand what you went through, but at least with transplant patients, we have stuff in common and some of our stories are similar. So they've sort of dealt with similar stories so they know how to deal with my story. So it was, it was really helpful for me. Miles also told us about his various healthcare teams. He underwent his first transplant surgery as a pediatric patient, after which he transitioned to the adult system. I think because we had such an incredible, really comprehensive and really inclusive family and really supportive experience at SickHead, we immediately noticed that there's a huge difference between, you know, being perceived as a kid um, going through transplant and being perceived as an adult going through transplant. We had so many amazing nurses. There's a nurse named Doug that would do the Dougie before doing treatments with Miles. <laughs> There's another nurse who takes syringes, you know, use them as little water squirters. And we, we had all kinds of nurses that would come in with special jokes, kind of sneak us smoothies or something or like good snacks. So going from that to the adult system where it's just so different and I think it's a hard transition. And I know that I'm echoing the thoughts of so many people I've talked to that have made the same transition either as as a patient or as a caregiver or as a family member. There is a support group at Toronto General though on their transplant ward. That was one of the best I would say experiences that we got in terms of feeling supported. So my whole family, Miles, myself, my mom and dad, we all went and met with other transplant families. Before we conclude, we asked our guests if they had any final messages for our listeners. In terms of messages, like a message to leave with the audience, I think just living your life as if it were your last, appreciating everything that you have and everything that you do, all the opportunity that comes along, because you really never know like when it'll be your last. Live it up.
<laughs> maybe don't confine yourself too much. My parting message maybe is to like really treasure and love the people that you have in your life and really approach people with care and love. I just was thinking whenever Miles was talking about advice that I'd give to other caregivers and people who come up to me and tell me stories about their new struggles as caregivers. It's, you know, adding as much variety of experiences as you can to your life. Because I think you can really easily get caught up in making your life all about, you know, the person that you love who's going through a transplant. What's been really helpful for myself and for other people in this role is, is to also focus on yourself and your interests. For organ donation to continue to provide a lifeline for patients across the country, and indeed around the world, it takes all of us to join in on the conversation and sign up to be a donor. If you live in Canada, as we've mentioned, organ donation policies differ by province. Please visit your provincial government's website to learn more about the ways you can make a difference, including signing up as a donor or volunteering to raise awareness. If you live in Ontario, please visit beadonor.ca. As our guests also emphasized, it's important to not only sign up to be a donor, but to talk to close friends and family about your decision in order to ensure that your wishes are respected in the future. Additional resources on organ donation are available in the show notes and on our website, rawtalkpodcast.com. This episode was hosted by myself, Frank Telfer, Atifa Mohammadi, and Noor El-Kabi. Claire Mazia was our content developer, Yagnesh Ladimor was our executive producer, and Esther Silk was our audio engineer. A very special thanks to our guests, Miles and Jillian Lynch, Maria Rahman, Jed Gross, Dr. Isfan Muchi, and Dr. Shaf Kashapji, for speaking with us and for sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. Be sure to check out our next episode in two weeks, where we'll be discussing medical tourism. Until then, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using our affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.